Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and senior editor Sue Sutter. Today is October 20th, 2023. Thanks for tuning in. We're enjoying fall foliage along with several interesting pharmaceutical industry stories this week. First up is Brainstorm Therapeutics and their troubled ALS candidate, Neuron. Sue, the company decided to withdraw the application? Yeah, so three weeks ago, they got a highly negative vote on their um, cell therapy from an FDA advisory committee, 17 to 1 with one abstention, um, finding that substantial evidence had not been demonstrated for efficacy. Um, And so apparently between that and subsequent discussions with the FDA, what company executives said was it became clear that the only viable pathway forward was for them to conduct a new phase three study. So instead of waiting around for a complete response letter at the uh, December 8th user fee date, they just announced that they were withdrawing the application, I guess, trying to get ahead of the news. That's, I guess, an interesting way to to handle it, although I don't think it's completely unprecedented. But do you think, Sue, that another trial is is realistic here? I know this, you know, it's speculating at this point, but, you know, I mean, is there any sense of how long that could take or how, you know, if they'll be able to set it up, find patients, et cetera? They offered no details in terms of how big a study might need to be. Um, They had proposed a phase four post-approval study. Before the advisory committee, they showed one slide on what that might look like, but it was very skimpy in terms of details, and there was absolutely no discussion of that at the advisory committee meeting. So um, I would think the main problem with Brainstorm right now is funding. Um, It sounds like they're going to be doing some pruning of staff to focus on those who would be involved in running this kind of setting up and running this kind of study. They would need, they're looking for funding to actually pay for the study. Um, The CEO said they've been talking to, uh, I think he said investors and, um, you know, would be seeking grants and that sort of thing. So um, I think it's really a big, uncertainty whether this this phase three study would actually happen or not at this point i mean i was yeah i mean when i read i was re when i read your story and the part about how they had to go out to investors to pay for the study um i i mean my mind immediately jumped to the you know does this ever come back you know does neuron just kind of go away because they can't you know I was going to ask if any of the like advocacy group, patient advocacy groups are invested in this product enough that they might somehow partner with them to help fund it. Like, is that a possible model here going forward? Or There's definitely been some um, dissension within the patient advocacy community um, over this product. Uh, some people have been very disappointed in the company and believing it was hyping something that had not really demonstrated any efficacy. IMALS had been has been very supportive, and they had really rallied support for this product um, ahead of the advisory committee. Even they issued a, pro- a statement after the withdrawal announcement saying um, the ALS community deserves better than this. 
Um, we knew the, the initial phase three trial was not really ideally designed. We're looking forward to working with Brainstorm and FDA and ALS patients to ensure the next study is, quote, transparent, fast, and has strong confirmatory science, which the initial study lacked. So I think that's saying something about kind of how the ALS community is now is feeling a little put off um, by sort of Brainstorm's actions on this product. I think a lot of the deficiencies and shortcomings with the product and the development program, including many product quality issues, all of that was laid bare at the advisory committee. And that was a gamble Brainstorm took because they ins they insisted the BLA be filed over protest. FDA had issued a refuse to file action on it and they insisted it be filed. So, you know, they wanted the opportunity to make their case in an advisory committee, but that advisory committee also revealed a whole bunch of problems that I don't think many in the ALS community were aware of when it came to this cell therapy. Yeah, they, you mentioned also that the company was seemed to they they seemed in thinking they seemed to be thinking that they could, you know, ride the wave of the the uh, elevitus approval in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I, I guess I'm curious, you know, what do you see as kind of the lesson for sponsors in this case? Yeah, I mean, I think they were trying to ride the wave of, well, two other ALS therapies in the past few years, um, Emelix's Relivrio and Biogen and Ionis's um, Calsati, neither of which had perfect data, definitely less than perfect data, but FDA, you know, very publicly exercised its regulatory flexibility on those two applications. Um, this one, I think this one just had too many problems, frankly. Um, you know, it had problems with none of the efficacy endpoints were met. It had an adverse mortality trend. It had um, multiple product quality issues and CMC deficiencies. And FDA said, you know, the company wasn't even providing clear explanation of what the mechanism of action was. That that was a shorting, sort of a shifting explanation. And that has implications for product quality and CMC and critical quality attributes and, and that sort of thing. So it was just, there were many, many problems with this. And I think that FDA just was not willing to go out on the limb and exercise that, you know, much vaunted regulatory flexibility in this case. I mean, it certainly recognizes the very high unmet need in ALS, but I definitely think it would have liked to have seen a much stronger application, a much a drug with much stronger efficacy results than were presented to it. Yeah, it always seems like that there's people who are surprised when they kind of see that regulatory flexibility actually has limits. Uh, you know, that, that's, yep. uh, I'm not trying to be funny, but, you know, FDA is flexible. FDA can be very, very flexible, but they're not, they, they're not, you know, they, they, you know they, they can't just approve things that have, you know, like you said, have these, have these um, significant problems. I, I guess is probably the right way to, to say it. So, it's a it's a very interesting case. We'll be watching and uh, waiting to see what the next step is for this product. So thanks, Sue. Sure.
Next, we're going to head over to the NIH. Uh, it's not an agency we usually cover as closely as the FDA, but Sarah, we did get some interesting thoughts on drug pricing from the nominee for for NIH director. Yeah, so um, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders is the chair of the Senate Health Committee, which oversees NIH now, and he's big in working on lowering the cost of drugs and has, you know, is interested in NIH being more aggressive and um, getting sort of um, commitments to reasonable pricing in the contracts they create with um, researchers they fund, as well as, you know, look, exploring a little bit more the government's use of margin rights to break patents if, you know, government funded inventions aren't um, priced at, you know, affordable levels. And he had actually held up the um, nomination of Bertanoli over concerns that the Biden administration wasn't doing enough around drug costs. So he really pressed her on um, what of the NIH's levers around drug pricing she would use. And perhaps not surprisingly, as um, nominees often like to do when they come before Congress, she she tried not to say so much and would not commit to any particular actions. Um, she, But she said her sort of philosophy is that she believes, you know, Americans deserve affordability and access to drugs, particularly that, you know, if their taxpayer funding has, you know, supported development that they, as sort of their return on investment, they should be able to afford the products. But it's unclear what that will mean moving forward, um, since she wouldn't commit to some of the particular to use some of the particular sort of levers NIH does have, and whether that's because she didn't want to commit to it because she knew she would get um, yelled at by the other side of the aisle. You know, Senator <laughs> um, Cassidy, um, who is the ranking member of the committee, the ranking Republican, you know, was sort of pushing her on the topic, but from the other end of it, and he raised concerns that, you know, industry would be less willing to partner with the government on and create some of the products we want if, you know, some of these authorities by NIH are exercised more. So it's an interesting thing. It's a topic we've, you know, followed for a number of years because advocates have, you know, long pressed NIH to use some of these authorities more. Um, Francis Collins, the longtime leader of the NIH, was resistant to it. Um, so this is the first time in, you know, about a dozen or so years we have someone else at the NIH in charge, and it also comes at a point where we have an HHS secretary who, in his sort of past life, was also more willing to um, push on, you know, the government's responsibilities around margin rights and reasonable pricing, although, again, since he's sort of taken this national position at H as HHS secretary, HHS secretary Javier Becerra has not <laughs> been as keen to follow through there. Um, perhaps some of that is because of where his boss is set on the topic. So it'll be something to watch moving forward, um, assuming she gets confirmed and so forth, although um, it'll be interesting to see. I, it, it seems like probably a reasonable chance she gets confirmed, but I'm not sure that uh, Sanders is going to vote for her yet. So we'll see. Sarah, yeah, my but... reaction when I read your story was, my first reaction was, is her nomination even going to get out of committee? Yeah, because I mean, she I, seems to have upset the, the leaders on both sides of that committee. 
it it is interesting. They're planning a vote um, next Wednesday, the twenty fifth. I mean, there were there were people who clearly indicated they were going to vote for her at the hearing, like Senator Patty Murray, Senator Tim Kaine. But I think it is going to be a. It might not be, you know, the the best vote. Um, I think it was um one of the senators. It was a Republican senator. I'm blanking on who now. Might have been actually Senator Tuberville, um, who's been holding up a lot of nominees <laughs> in Congress. But um, he made a point that Senator Francis Senator that um, NIH Director Francis Collins got confirmed on a unanimous consent vote, which um, basically means his nomination was incredibly uncontroversial and easy to get him through. This is clearly not going to happen here. I think it speaks to sort of um, partially, you know, Francis Collins, I think, just became this really beloved figure who um, resonated with people on both the right and the left and just seemed to be able to bridge, you know, partisan concerns. And but I I think it's not necessarily like personal in some ways to, um, you know, Dr. Berdagnoli. It's that um, she's sort of being nominated at a time where NIH has kind of gone through this period during COVID and post-COVID where Republicans in particular, I think, are, are sort of frustrated with how they see the agency handling um, some stuff in terms of their the crisis, including, you know, how they've looked at or investigated, um, you know, the origins of COVID, um, how transparent they've been with the Hill about, you know, some of the um, research they fund on pathogens that can, you know, potentially cause pandemics. Um, and then there's just a lot of other of these like hot button um, political topics um, where there was pretty much no way she could give an answer that would make both sides of the aisle feel, you know, comfortable with her at um, the hearing, you know, Cassidy pressed and a number of other Republicans pressed on fetal tissue research, which I think has been a controversial topic over time. There's um, a lot of um, Republican concern about what research is going on related to uh, medical procedures for youth who identify as transgender. So, I mean, there were definitely, it was definitely felt a lot more tense than I think you tend to think of for NIH at Congress. Yeah, this certainly doesn't sound like the uh, <clears throat> the goal that I heard of several years ago for, for any confirmation hearing, which is you want to say things so nobody remembers anything. And yeah, that that's not going to happen, I don't think, in this case. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, she did the best I think she could um, get, <laughs> given the situation. But I think people on both sides of the aisle were asking her to commit to things she felt like she she couldn't commit to. <laughs> um, so we'll see how that translates um, in terms of, you know, an ultimate up or down vote and whether, you know, Sanders tries to use or anyone else for that matter, tries to use any more of their leverage to try and like slow down the nomination to get her to more explicitly make any concessions. Um, you know, Derek, you reported um, a number of weeks ago when um, Regeneron and the government, um, it wasn't NIH in this case, it was BARDA, entered into a contract that had a reasonable pricing clause related to um, development of new COVID antibodies. That was sort of the um, 
the straw that broke the camel's back and let Sanders ease up on letting her nomination move to this point. But if he's not happy with her answers from the hearing, he could certainly probably do some other things to kind of slow walk it in to try and get concessions. And um, S Senator Tuberville actually um, talked about that a little bit at the hearing and sort of he was making the case again, because I mentioned he's holding up some other, you know, sort of nominations with the same sort of goal in mind that he he made the argument that that's sort of the role of a senator to try and use these sorts of powers they have to get the leverage and the policies they want. So we'll see what happens. On it, and at this point, too, we're waiting. We're nearing the end of the presidential term. I mean, it's hard to believe already. But, you know, even if she does get confirmed, she's going to be in office, what, maybe a year? 14 months. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, that's not unprecedented either. I mean, Robert Califf's first term was about, I think, 14 months because he came in right at the end of the Obama administration and then was not uh, asked to stay. So, you know, it, at that point, you start to wonder, you know, at what, how long before she thinks I'm, you know, this is just, uh, you know, I'm not, even if I do get confirmed, I'm not going to have much time to get anything anything substantial done that I want to get done. Right. And, you know, she had a lot. She had some interesting comments, too, that I, I think around things that the industry might find um, interesting if she was able to kind of have the time and the job to follow through with them. You know, she seemed interested in she's currently the head of the National Cancer Institute and she seemed interested in expanding some work they're doing there that helps kind of elucidate the natural history of rare diseases to other areas. You know, she seems very interested in thinking about um, improving, making faster clinical trials, figuring out how to incorporate AI in clinical trials. And she's a bit more of a um, a clinical trialist, I guess you might say, than Francis Collins. I think Francis Collins was more sort of famous or well-known for his kind of lab research and basic science discoveries that have obviously changed the face of medicine. But she really has sort of expertise and sort of a focus in um, more of that later end of research um, that the drug industry kind of really works on. So, but, you know, if you're only there for a year, I'm not sure you can really, um, you have the time to kind of make any major changes. You become a little bit more of like a caretaker at that point. I should preface, I mean, there's, there's no guarantee that she, if she gets confirmed that she would be asked to go at the end of the term. I mean, if right if, or Biden um, could if win. Bi the if Biden's reelected, yeah. If Biden's reelected, he could ask her to stay. And you know, but um, typically we and we mark the the end of presidential terms because that's usually a time when a lot of you know appointees that are confirmed by the Senate choose to leave or don't get asked to stay. That's why that that date is important. But it's a it's a it. You know, interesting to see kind of how this stretches, uh, you know, around, you know, beyond it, some of these FDA issues um, stretch be kind of beyond the FDA and, and even into the basic research realm. So thanks, Sarah. Finally, we're going to look at gene therapy. As gene therapies are approved, being approved, there are questions about their long-term effects on patients. And by long-term, I mean more than a decade. As Part of the post-marketing commitments, gene therapy sponsors are being asked to follow their treated patients for 15 years. That's a really long time for post-market surveillance. And a lot can happen during that really long time. 
Companies can go under, doctors retire, patients move out of state. So if you're trying to follow these people, what are you supposed to do? Well, the FDA is trying to figure that out. Office of Therapeutic Products Director Nicole Verdun said the agency is struggling with how to deal with the problem of ensuring post-market surveillance despite all of those and thousands of other potential problems that she says could happen. One thing she said was that there needs to be a partnership between patients, families, sponsors, and physicians. But she also said that more dialogue is needed and suggested a public meeting may be necessary to solicit ideas from stakeholders. Sarah and Sue, I'm curious what you think of all this. What's it going to take to ensure that this follow-up occurs? Or are we just going to have to live with lots and lots of dropouts? Well, the the fact that this is suddenly kind of becoming a very public issue, and I found this fascinating, suggests to me that they're already seeing <laughs> dropouts in the in the and I don't remember how many gene therapies have been approved today, but that's it seems to me that they've already started witnessing this problem and it must be fairly substantial for them to be considering, you know, a public forum on this. So I think they have some real grave concerns about this. Um, I'm not sure what kind of guardrails they could set around this. I'm assuming those post-marketing trials, I'm not sure if they were post-marketing commitments or post-marketing requirements. So at least if they were requirements, then there's you know definitely that that legal obligation for the sponsors, and they would be safety requirements, I assume. But you know if they're just post-marketing commitments, I'm not sure how much leverage they would have to try to make them follow, you know, do all this long-term follow-up. But it strikes me that they are already seeing issues with dropouts. I mean, I, I don't get the sense that the sponsors are not willing to do it. I get the, I think the bigger problem is that after, you know, you know, normal, uh, you know, some of the post-marketing requirements we've seen for follow-ups are, you know, half as long, eight years at the most. A lot of them are like five years, depending on what the issue is they have to look at. You know, I, I think they're worried that you're just going to see a lot of loss to follow-up because, you know, I mean, a, a kid gets a gets a gene therapy and changes his cell phone number and they can't find him. So, mm -hmm. you know, well, I think that's kind of the, the question they have is, what do you do when something like that happens? Or, I mean, another scenario she brought up was, um, Verdun mentioned, was that the hospital where that was handling the trial just closes the trial and says, we're not dealing with this anymore. Then what do you do? You know, who has... Who, who gets all the contact info? Who does that get transferred to somebody to do that? Is there a mechanism in place to make sure that happens? There's like all these kind of things they have to think through, um, you know, and it's the same scenario like if the sponsor goes under or gets bought or something like that happens where they just disappear, then what do you do? So, yeah, yeah it, it's a, it, it's, it, I think it's just a, it's just a, a complex problem that life is just making you know, incredibly complex. <laughs> I think you're going to see some talk about strengthening and broadening the informed consent process to really bring some of these elements into play. On the cancer side, Rick Pastor has talked about um, there needs to be more education of clinicians and patients to make sure that they're going into trials for the right reasons and that they will stay in those trials. In this case, it's it's has to do with whether or not you're randomized to the investigational therapy or the placebo. 
But I think there may be more emphasis around this and around ensuring that patients understand the obligation that they have committed to when they go into a trial. They've committed to this many, many years of follow-up. Also, there may be, you know, provisions in that informed consent process of, well, even if you withdraw from the follow-up, you know, we have a right to kind of check on your vital status or something like that. I was going to say, could they somehow have permission sort of to access medical records or something like that? That would be sort of a, without directly somehow going through the patient would be interesting. Assuming they can find the medical records. (laughs) And it's compatible. And, you know. (laughs) The one thing I was going to say, too, is um, I I don't know exactly how this could work or... um, but you would think that play- payers are going to have a lot of like skin in the game here because a lot of these products are not expected to be cheap and the selling mm-hmm. point is going to be, you know, you get this one time expensive therapy and it um, ends up actually making sense over time because you're not needing, you know, X, Y or Z years of treatment of these other therapies, which are expensive and actually might add up um, more. And so I wonder if there's a way for payers to somehow use their leverage to really push to get some of this work completed, right? Because, you know, at some point, you know, they really want to know that these products really are, you know, better than what they are replacing and that they're getting the right, you know, deal for their money. (laughs) Um, But, But then what happens if you change insurance providers? Then no, I mean, all that's I mean gone. that's a big problem with the, the with the U.S. right and yeah, figuring out how to do this. Um, depending on, I mean, I, you know, if it's something that um, ends up being used in young children and Medicaid's involved for a lot of the a lot of the payment, you know, that might in some ways make it easier to deal with than if you're thinking about a product that's going to be used mostly by, you know, commercial payers or, you know, people who are going through the like churn of health plans and the sort of employer segment. Mm-hmm. But that is a sort of a complication of the U.S. system. Um, I would also think, I mean, in my mind, the sort of second or third generation of patients who might get these drugs or gene therapies are going to want, would want some of this data, right? Especially if they do have options. So again, I think there's going to be groups of people that are are pushing for this and would exert some pressure on it to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I know one of the, that there were on the, the panel where they were discussing this, there was a physician who treats rare disease patients who was talking about one of the things she does is she like makes a she called it a contract it's not like she said there's like no one's going to jail if the contract is broken but i physically have them sign a piece of paper that says i understand that i have to do come back every six months and do all this follow-up and you know that kind of thing and she said that seemed to help another idea that was brought up was kind of was allowing local data collection and like for like the labs and things like that, allow, allowing the patients to go to clinics in their, in, you know, where they are instead of, you know, having to travel somewhere to like, you know, like California or Texas or something to, to have all this done. Cause that, you know, to increase compliance, but again, how do you get it to, how do you get the data to where it needs to go? Is there some kind of, 
EHR or some kind of software to be able to do that. I don't, I don't know. Um, the more I thought about it, the more it seemed kind of like the, you know, the, the federal government's pension, you know, kind of like, I don't know if it, it's not the pension insurance agency or whatever it's called, but if, if, if a company goes under, there is a government program that ensures pension, the pension plan gets paid out or, you know, like stays in place and doesn't get like, you know, dissolved so people can keep getting their benefits. But, you know, I don't know if FDA wants that job. I don't know if the taxpayers want to pay for that. I don't, you know, I don't know if, you know, does a sponsor deposit some money to ensure that a CRO can keep this going in, you know, for however long they decide it needs to go. It's like, there are all these questions that, you know, that nobody is going to like the answer to, I'm sure. <laughs> Seems to me there might be a role here for the patient advocacy groups as well. Yeah, they had talked about uh, with the natural history study data, the patient advocates have been trying to get some control or, may, you know, have control of that so they could use it. Uh, because a lot of in a lot of cases, like it, they were housed in academic institutions, and like the investigator leaves or you know retires or something, and then it's like, well, I want my data, and they and the the university you know makes it incredibly difficult to get it because they're saying you know for whatever reasons you want to you want to come up with on that one, but yeah, that's a that that could be a, an answer as well. But again, you have to ensure the the groups. Are going to stay around for perpetuity too and have the ability to maintain all that the other thing i guess i was thinking about and maybe this isn't as huge an issue if they've already like sort of received the product but there's probably some ethical balance between sort of really encouraging people to stay in studies and like pressuring them right beyond what they um feel comfortable with right there's got to be some sort of balance, I would think, where like bioethicists would get concerned that, like, you know, they do feel like they have the right to leave, too, if they, for some mm -hmm. reason. Um, I don't know how you, again, handle that, <clears throat> but, um, you know, you, you don't want to make them feel like, again, that this is not to some degree sort of a voluntary commitment and they do have, you know, the right to leave if they really need to. Well, and there, there's... And for some of these gene therapies, they don't know if you need a second dose. So, you know, one of the reasons to stay, to keep doing the follow-up is to to determine right away if you need, you know, if, if they need to treat you again. So, you know, that, that's one, that's one incentive to stay, to stay in the study, but, or, to, you know, to stay, stay with the follow-up. But yeah, it's a, it's going to be, it's a, it's a difficult question. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Sue Sutter. Take care, and we'll see you next time.